Algeria, Canada, Hungary, Uganda, the UK, the US, Zambia. Thank you all very much for listening. Remember, if you haven't done so already, click on the follow or subscribe button to automatically download episodes. This podcast is free, and some say it's worth exactly what you pay for it. Hi, I'm Anthony Walters, and welcome to the Investment Manager Podcast. We're here to help you learn more about a wide variety of investment managers, their theories, and their investment outlook in order to challenge your own. My guest on today's show is Michael Guyen. Michael is the portfolio manager of the ATAC Mutual Fund alongside two rotation-based ETFs. For over a decade, he has published a league lag report, which is focused on delivering detailed risk analysis alongside highlighting investment opportunities. Michael has also published five award-winning white papers covering defensive strategies and tactical rotation. Join me as we discuss the value of a risk-on, risk-off approach, why 2022 has been history-making, and why just because there's new information that could be factored into a model, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's repeatable. All opinions expressed by the podcast host and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or business interests. Both the host and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. I just thought I'd dive right in and ask you a few questions regarding your background, where you grew up, and if you had any family connections to the investment business. I appreciate the invite. So yeah, pretty much grew up in the business. I've mentioned this before on social media and other podcasts, but my father had worked with Bob Farrell, who was this kind of legendary technician in the late eighties, was on his team, wrote two books on markets, ended up having his own RIA in the nineties, started a hedge fund in 2000. So I kind of grew up seeing my father's own journey as not only an investor, but also an entrepreneur, really just as sort of the institutionalization started to explode in the 90s. A joke, it's like I used to hear them talk, my mother, my father talk about markets, and all I wanted to do was play with my, my Game Boy, right, as a, as a kid. But I always had a fascination with markets. I worked on the floor of New York Stock Exchange when I was 16 as an intern, um, was one of those nerdy guys who would read every single book he could on investing as a teenager. So I always found the field interesting and fascinating. Obviously, my father being, you know, that that was his profession added to the fuel to the fire there. But when my father passed in 08, I essentially had to kind of reinvent myself. I was an unknown person, started doing a lot of writings. And, you know, a decade plus later, find myself managing three funds, putting out research and still not having quite made it as I hoped I would. Did you ever feel pressured to move into the business, the family business as such? Not so much. You know, it's... I, I will say, I think my parents are pretty good at presenting things from the standpoint of choices, right? That it's not like this is something that you have to do, but you know, you can either do this or something else. So I don't think it was really sort of pressure. I do think with hindsight, I pressured myself a lot because when my father had his success and he had a lot of ups and downs himself, I, I never wanted to be seen as the kid that took over the family business at the time when it was still up and running. 
I wanted to show that I earned it, right? That I was worthy of being a successor to this, you know, relatively small RA at the time. So the pressure was more on me to to make sure that I knew my stuff, right? And it turns out that wouldn't have mattered because I was not of age anyway to take over the business. But I think a lot of that knowledge still is obviously with me today. You have a wealth of experience throughout the industry. If we look at things like hedge fund experience, launching strategies, um, forward to research analysis, and even the distribution side of the business, how is it that you've taken that collective of experience and then helped that to form your investment process that exists today? So the dirty little secret of managing funds and managing a portfolio is that for the most part, you don't spend every single second or minute doing analysis. Right. I mean, I think people have this impression that when you're a fund manager, when you're a portfolio manager, when you're managing separately managed accounts, that you're always going to be doing something to the portfolio, always studying something that causes an, an action. The reality is once you have your allocation, you have your allocation. Now, in my case, purposely, the three funds that I launched that I put my own hard earned capital in to bring to market, my mutual fund ATAX, my Roro ETF, my Jojo ETF, they're all quant rules based, meaning that they live beyond me, right? There's no discretionary. It's purely based on what the quant models say to position into and what the signals are saying in terms of playing offense, defense, risk on, risk off. That has its pluses and minuses, like everything else. The plus, of course, is that I don't have to think too much because I'm just following an approach, right, that's regimented. There's no emotion behind it. The negative there, maybe you can argue, is that when you're rules-based and you're in an environment like this year, with hindsight, maybe the rules were meant to be broken because what your rules are based on are broken by the market. But even that's easier said than done, right? Because especially when you're managing a mutual fund or ETF, you have a prospectus. You have to manage the prospectus. So as a portfolio manager, it's a lot easier to have a rules-based quantitatively driven approach. What's not easy is seeing that the cycle is not favoring the approach and still having to stick to it because that's what your mandate is to do. So that would be 2022 specifically. If we think about risk off assets, not really being that, if we look at correlations and so forth, you know, no place to hide really, except for cash. And that's only on a relative basis because cash itself obviously suffers when we factor in inflation. I know that Jim O'Shaughnessy is very much rules-based. Everybody will be aware of his work. He prides himself on having never overridden a model and having a graveyard of failed back tests along the way. How is it when it comes to commercial pressure, when it comes to new information being fed into the models, how is it to remain that conviction to the same depth versus commercial pressure and new information that's being fed into the models by the market? All right, so good question. There's a couple of things to unpack there. First of all, just because there's new information doesn't mean it's repeatable information, right? So in other words, you could have a situation where there's some new variable, like, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this Bank of Japan, and you say to yourself, well, you know, maybe that should cause a, some kind of tweaking to a model to an approach. Okay, the problem that, that with the idea that you always have to incorporate new information is that, one, the information may not be that important from a longer-term perspective. It might matter in the here and now, but not tomorrow. But also, you have to be very careful with incorporating too many variables in any approach, right? The more, I've always made this point, it's like the more variables you have in an equation, the more vulnerable it is because every single variable has its own error. And then you have correlations of errors that then create unintended consequences and, and butterfly effects. That's why a lot of these major quant funds that use regressions that have thousands of variables to perfectly explain why markets do what they do inevitably blow up. I'm very much of the mindset that you've got to have one or two things to track 
that might explain maybe 50, 60% of why markets do what they do and accept the truth, which is the rest is probably randomness, then try to chase optimization. Now, the pressure comes from the short-termism that people, one, I think are unable to differentiate the person from the problem. So I've been very open about this year saying this year is hell, right? My funds have gone through nasty drawdowns. Thankfully, they're on the men now because I think this risk on risk off dynamic is starting to kick back in. But you know, a lot of people see the small sample and they think that it's because I was purposely trying to go through a drawdown. Well, no, there's every strategy, including buy and hold of a market cap weighted index will have cycles where it doesn't work. This happens to have been a really nasty cycle where no amount of new information would have mattered because even if you were to say at the start of the year that you knew the Fed was going to have its fastest rate hiking cycle in history, that would tell you nothing about the number of weeks the S&P would be down as a percentage of the year. It would tell you nothing about the number of weeks the treasuries would lose money as a percentage of the year. It would tell you nothing about the path. And by the way, it would also argue, I would argue, tell you nothing about the fight to safety trade. So I've made that point many times before. You look at the largest drawdowns, top 20 largest drawdowns for equities going back to 1961. In four of those drawdowns, the Fed funds rate is rising as stocks are going through a decline from peak to trough. And long duration treasury yields actually fall and make you money while the short end is rising. So, you know, it's a long-winded answer, but I find that the challenge and the pressure when you're running strategies is how do you communicate against naivete? How do you communicate against people that are judging something based on what is a very clear anomaly and do so with integrity when you and I both know there's a lot of people in this business that will just pretend like everything's fine? Is the failure of the flight to safety trade in 2022 a black swan event? Yeah. You got to be careful with that term because Nassim Taleb said no to me on that. And I got all kinds of attacks on Twitter. And I'm going to keep pushing back. It's The black swan isn't that stocks and bonds lost money. I think people misinterpreted that tweet I put out there. It's the way that it happened. I keep going back to you cannot say that stocks and bonds are both due to lose money without identifying the interaction of the two, the path, the sequence. and Aside from the fact that this is the first time in history treasuries have lost more money than stocks, you combine that with the number of weeks the S&P has lost money most since 1931. You combine that with the number of weeks that treasuries have lost money most in history as a percentage of the year. You've got three outliers, each of which by itself are anomalies, and they're all happening at the same time. Okay, don't call it a black swan. Call it the, the anomaly of all anomalies. Call it the one thing that throws everything off on, on a model. Any data set will have that. Over time, you will always have some kind of outlier in some anomaly that pops up. You want to call it a black swan? Yeah, I think there's validity to it in that it was highly consequential to me. And maybe that's why, to me, it's a black swan. How much of your process is influenced by academic research and how much is experience-based? Experience is an interesting thing, right? Because it can be helpful if there's repetition. It can also blind you when there isn't repetition. Everything is academic and back-tested. Now, I make this joke quite a bit. It's like when I present at CFA chapters across the country, I'll ask the room full of CFA charter holders, how many of you believe in back-testing? And you know, maybe like half of the people will raise their hand saying, yeah, we believe in back-testing. And then I'll say, well, how many of you believe in buy and hold? And the other half will raise their hand. And the conclusion then, of course, is that everybody believes in back-testing because Buy and hold is a back test with one trade, 
right? That's the thing about, you know, academic versus experience, even the idea of stocks for the long run, all that is based on some historical context, some historical relationship, right? So it's not clear to me why people think that you can come up with an approach that's discretionary without even knowing if what you are using for the discretionary signals has any merit historically to begin with. The style of investing is very different, I think, from mainstream. There's definitely an emerging approach as far as active ETFs goes, for example. What led you to the point of focusing on and specializing in a rotation strategy? Well, part of that is that you almost have no choice if you're going to try and manage a fund. There's only two ways really to grow a fund complex. Either you compete on fees, which means you're competing as Vanguard. Okay, good luck. You're never going to get to any kind of break-even of size when you're small if your fee is 10 basis points because you're doing what everybody else is doing, cheap beta. Or you have to take a risk, which means you have to effectively have the shiny object moment, meaning something that can somewhat live on the tails, that when it works, it works in a big way. Now, I live this with my mutual fund. In 2020, my mutual fund was up 72%. And it was up 72% because it was risk-off in advance of the COVID crash and then risk-on March 31st. This is run with real money, wasn't a backtest. The signals got it right. The opportunity set played along. You can't really build a business and grow assets any other way unless you have a couple of years which are really strong because I hate to say it, this is the reality. As much as I don't like it, people chase performance. So either you're going to go for low fees and kind of middle performance or you take a chance, create something which can have the potential for outsized returns that allows you to charge more. And unfortunately for investors, a lot of people then buy in after you've had that kind of event and that's often when you actually want to probably take less risk in that approach. Lumber seems to be central to some of your strategies. Tell me why Lumber and how that helps you to evaluate market conditions and economic conditions as a whole. Well, I know it's hard to tell from my virtual background, but I do live in a house, right? And the average home has around 16,000 board feet of lumber. I know a lot of people think I'm obsessed with lumber. They're largely right. But what I would say is that it's not so much about lumber. It's about demand for money. So these five different research studies that I'm known for that are the academic work that I put out, that are the underpinnings of all my funds, they all have that one thing in common. They're all basically documenting leading indicators to volatility, and those leading indicators to volatility changes are tied to changes in the demand for money, changes in rates that would suggest that volatility is likely to rise. Utilities are a tell on volatility because utilities are a tell on the demand for money falling because they benefit when rates are falling. That's negative. That's disinflationary. That's actually when you tend to have illiquid, volatile events. When lumber is weak, it tells you housing is about to be weak. Well, if housing is about to be weak, what does that tell you about credit creation, about the number one asset for most consumers? That's going to be weak. That's contractionary. So it's, it's more than just lumber. It's sort of what is it that the indicators are ultimately kind of getting at in, in different ways. Now, lumber has been weak all year, and you can argue correctly so. It's actually been a correct indicator. What was incorrect in this was the expression of playing defense, which is treasuries, especially long duration treasuries, which again has been the hell that I've they've gone through. The way that lumber has behaved here would actually, I would think, suggest that housing is really going to go through a nasty, nasty period in the next several years. And it's still very early in its downtrend, but if housing is due to really break down in a different path and sequence than what we saw from 2006... That probably means that it's going to be a bear market for a while for not just housing, but also stocks, that we're going to be in this kind of very difficult environment, a lot of push and pull, where you have contractionary impact of housing having a spillover to equities, and then you have the Fed doing what it always does, which is acting too late. 
So my question is, are we already there as far as the housing market goes? So think of the UK market and the US market, definite signs of cooling off. If we push to Canada and if we push to Australia, actually, we're probably pushing towards bear territory if we use the 20% analogy. So are we already there as far as housing goes? And what does Lumber tell you around that? Yeah, I mean, probably the thing is the comps are not that frequent because you do legitimately have inventory issues across the globe, right? So if you don't have as many transactions to know what the true value of properties are, it's hard to really know if you're in a bear market that's early or late, you can argue. So I think there's some merit to that. If you just use lumber prices as a proxy, you've had, again, a pretty big decline, which again suggests that home building is going to basically grind to halt. For lumber to go back to its historical range that it had in the 90s, it can go down another 50% and it would be normal from here. So that bear market you know, of 20% could end up being something far worse than 20% if indeed rates stay elevated, if indeed you have a deeper recession than people think, and if you have people basically not knowing what to do because they can't buy a new home at 7% mortgage when they are paying 2% on their existing property. Now, the point of recession there, many maintain that recession is priced in. So my question is, to what extent is recession priced in and has the market priced in a mild, moderate, or deep recession? So I'm going to argue that the stock market, well, I should take that back. It's not just the stock market. I don't think anything is priced in as far as recession. Look at what's happened from an intermarket perspective. Okay, so you've had inversion of the yield curve. That's usually a sign of recession. It doesn't necessarily mean that you guaranteed have a recession. The bigger tell is not really the inversion of the yield curve. The bigger tell is credit spreads, right? So sort of the differential of high yield debt to AAA. So usually when you're in a recession, there's concerns about default, about companies even being around. So how does that translate into the bond market? It means that investors start demanding higher yield from the riskier borrowers, which is the junk debt, high yield space. So that ends up having now a premium, a default risk premium. You have not seen any of that widening really this year at all. So the bond market internally doesn't see a recession. Now you can argue, I think correctly so, a large part of that's because a lot of these high yield issuers did lock in these very low rates and they don't have to worry about rolling over until down the line. Okay, all that's true. But from that perspective, I'd argue you don't really have concerns of a recession. The Dow is what, as we speak, down, I don't know, 11, 12%. I mean, that doesn't really smell or feel like recession, right? So I don't know. I, this is one of those really strange environments because there are a lot of things that would suggest that the market should have already priced in much more. And by the market, I mean more than just stocks. I go back to credit spreads. But it really hasn't happened yet. And it's curious. I don't know if it's a function of sort of the delay with which r higher rates impact the real economy or if it's true that there was so much liquidity that it's going to take much more tightening to really break the dynamics. But it is perplexing because if you were really bearish on the economy, you should have seen many more confirming signals than you've seen this year. To the point there regarding the Fed and central banking policy. Now, some think that the Fed will pivot next year and some think that they'll persist until the Fed's fund rate is at equilibrium with the inflation rate. My question to you is how long can rising rates persist for and what could a new normal look like? That's the $31 trillion and counting question, right? Because the real answer to that is rates can only persist at an elevated level as long as the government can still pay off its interest expense with its tax base. 
the moment that the amount of taxes the U.S. government collects from us, the citizens, the moment that that ends up being less than the cost of servicing debt, that's when it's game over, right? That's when you can't have higher rates because you'll never get out of that. That is the debt trap. So where that is, is, is a big question mark. I do think that there is a, an interesting logic to the speed with which the Fed has hiked rates. It's more than just inflation having come out of, in quotes, nowhere, which we know is not really true, that the Fed wants to hike rates as quickly as possible because they are probably seeing when a lot of the rollovers from the U.S. government start kicking in. So they want to raise rates before the rollovers happen to then lower them as the rollovers do occur, right, on, on government debt spending. So that, to me, I think is part of the reason why also, as insane as this year has been, you can actually maybe argue that the Fed is trying to do the right thing because they're seeing potentially a much bigger problem if they don't kill off the inflation fast. On the point of rates, let me read a tweet that Peter Schiff posted today. So Peter Schiff says, the Bank of Japan blinked and pivoted in the opposite direction. After artificially holding the 10-year JGB yield at 0.25%, the BOJ just raised the target rate to 0.5. More hikes are coming. In the US, this means that dollar and asset prices will fall and inflation will rise. So how can the unlimited bond buying actions of the Bank of Japan drive the US dollar and asset prices down? How is it all connected? First of all, just to be clear, the reaction that we're seeing the day of that happening may not be the ultimate reaction, but you're talking about the mechanics of what happens. There's a lot of aspects to the carry trade and how it impacts the dollar, how it impacts treasuries that make it kind of interesting because the way that Japan ends up managing its rates and its currency is not necessarily so much about what they're doing domestically, but in terms of how they're buying our government debt also, right? And parking capital based on their own currency actions against the US dollar. This may be the real big story next year, right? Because for 30 years, everyone's been talking about Japan being the ultimate problem, that at some point, what's going on with Japan will have massive ramifications on the global economy. And for 30 years, everyone's been lulled into the fact that Japan's kept on going along with its insane debt to GDP. And it's still, I believe, the third largest economy. So if now all that suddenly the hyper's got to get paid and suddenly Japan matters for the global economy with all this debt, that's going to be really fascinating because a lot of people have been warning about that dynamic for a while. It just turns out it may have taken three decades to actually come to pass. Let's drill down into the real hot topic here, because just over two weeks ago, you posted a wide-reaching thread on Twitter stating that conditions favored an imminent stock market crash. Now, since the beginning of December 22, U.S. indices are up between 4 and almost 8%, depending upon which you choose. So talk me through your thesis for conditions being bearish, the historical case for today's conditions being bearish in the past, and whether this time is different. So again, to be very clear, I don't believe in making calls. I'm not one of those guys that's a crash caller. At least I hope people realize that, that I really do view investing from the lens of like driving your car, right? It's like when it's sunny, you can speed up. When it's raining, you got to slow down. And just because it's raining doesn't mean you'll crash. And just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't. It's always about the conditions that favor the probabilities that get you the outcome. October 2nd, I believe it was, I put a tweet thread basically arguing that there's a melt-up coming. Actually, it wasn't a thread. It was just an outright tweet. People thought I was crazy or joking, but I was actually very serious and adamant that you'd probably have a melt-up because the argument back then I was making was that if bond market volatility doesn't subside, it's the end of the world. The system cannot function if you have more volatility in government debt than that which you're leveraging against the government debt. So you might as well make a bet that 
know, things will be fine, that they'll kick the can down the road, that volatility will subside. And that's what happened. You had a pretty sizable move in a matter of two months. Then I pivoted hard in saying, you know, I think now the conditions favor a crash. And I wasn't trying to be hyperbolic in that, but the way that I see this is you entered December very weak, historically when stocks are down heavy in the first five days of December, going back to the 1920s, December ends pretty poorly. The seasonality doesn't matter in that situation. Okay. So that's at least some historical precedent. The fact that lumber keeps on weakening the way that it's been weakening, there's some research I put out that shows that the length of time that lumber is weakening can also warn you of big tail events. So it's more than just direction, but duration in that. And the fact that treasuries, and we'll see if it sticks, right? Treasury yields have been acting more risk-offish, meaning, as I mentioned before, post-FTX, it looked like that risk-on, risk-off flight to safety dynamic started kicking back in. All that was sort of the weight of the evidence, right? That there's some kind of rain that's on the horizon, so you might as well slow down. And the reality is, Treasury yields have been a relative outperformer against equities since I mentioned that. And you've had a pretty sizable decline in a matter of like four trading days from the peak when the CPI came out to, to you know, sometime this week. You've had like a 10% swing in a matter of just a few days. I know a lot of people get stuck on well, how do you define a crash? I've not, I haven't really quite answered that on Twitter purposely, but I view the definition of a crash in terms of time. How much time do you give back? Not necessarily a percentage Right. So historically, major crashes, you get back nine months worth of performance, eight, nine, 10 months worth of performance, which means basically that you probably just have a, a retest again, maybe, or even go lower than the lows that we saw in late September, early October. But regardless of whether you have a crash or not, the conditions still are going to be hard for buy and hold allocators. I go back to the point that this is probably a bear market that's going to take time. And when you're in a bear market, the risks are there that you have a tail event. And it can happen at any moment in time. There are some junctures where there's heightened risk. I think this is one of them. I could be wrong. I mean, so far, equities have sold off pretty hard. And for all we know, this Bank of Japan panic move, like I said, could end up having other unintended consequences that have nasty impacts on risk on assets. But it's more. my point is that it's more than just one indicator. It's also about just behavior internally. And all the things that I was arguing around the melt-up started reversing. Small caps started weakening, right? I mean, you started seeing some junk debt weakness relative to treasuries start to slowly creep in. The credit spread widening slowly maybe starting to happen. All that, again, would be consistent with what everyone says is coming next year, recession, and maybe the market's starting to price some of that in. In terms of indicators, what are your thoughts on the low level of the VIX at the moment? I say low level because relatively speaking, a VIX is trading at 21 today. It feels to me very much like I've experienced more volatility or seen more of that in the S&P and beyond recently. In my opinion, at the moment, it feels a little bit like the VIX is lagging somewhat. A market selling off in an orderly fashion now. What's different? Yeah, well, it has been an orderly sell-off. It's like, I've, I mean, that's again, part of the melt-up argument was that the number of weeks the S&P had lost money condition people to think that stocks would do nothing but go lower, right? You're actually spot on on that. And that partially explains the VIX being low, right? Volatility being lower than what one would expect when looking at the VIX index, given the dynamics that are surrounding us that all look very bleak. The thing is, the VIX to me is like the mile marker that you crash, right? The level, which is the mile marker. The conditions get you to the mile marker. So the lumber to gold, utilities against the market, even moving averages, they tend to warn you in advance of major VIX spikes. But that doesn't mean, of course, that every time they warn you, you have a VIX spike, but VIX spikes tend to be preceded by weakness in lumber, strength in utilities, you being below the two-day moving average. That's one of those divergences that probably does have to, at some point, resync. 
And I would argue that very much relates to the breaking of the fight to safety trade. So the same dynamic of treasuries not countering equity volatility like historically they have proven to do, treasuries tend to correlate to the VIX. In other words, usually when you have a VIX spike, you'll see yields drop aggressively on the long end. And the fact that treasuries failed like that is probably the same reason that the VIX has failed. What that reason is, I have no clue. But it's been, you know, it is one of those true anomalies that I just think at some point will write itself. Point that you made there regarding the 200-day moving average, I always think of Paul Tudor Jones when he said that essentially nothing good happens below the 200-day moving average. So with that in mind, I don't know off-cuff where we are exactly right now. I know we're definitely below some of the other majors, so the 50 were definitely below. How can investors shield from increasing volatility and also the coming confirmation of recession? Because I believe we're already there. Yes, and, and by the way, typically when you're in a recession, you're already below the 200-day moving average. I mean, there's a link between, that's where market and economy kind of a little bit go hand in hand. And that point that is correct. I mean, you know, historically, volatility is higher when you're below 200-day moving average. Usually when you're in a recession, you're already below 200-day moving average. Most extreme up and down days happen below 200-day moving average, right? And by the way, that's both. It's like, this is why shorting is so challenging because it's not about direction about the moving average. It's about volatility dynamics, right? More extreme kind of seesaws, whipsaws. So... Historically, the best way to play a moving average type of rotation is treasuries, again, which just hasn't played out this year, but might still next year. And just lowering your beta, lowering your volatility exposure overall, meaning utilities, staples, and healthcare. I think that, now that's also, I would argue, challenging because those have worked this year, right? Utilities in particular have really outperformed substantially throughout this entire period. But they're also very overvalued. So you have this kind of interesting dynamic also where defensiveness, which is what you'd normally use to play being below a 2 moving average, well, that's also fundamentally very, very overpriced. If the secular trend is up, what's the case for diversifying beyond long-only investment strategies? Has our short-termism changed things and made us focus more on cyclical trading as a whole? I don't think many people are really long-term investors to begin with, just to be clear. I mean, everyone is tactical, even if they don't want to be tactical because they're tempted to be tactical, because there's no commissions, because there's zero DTE options, right? There's all this gamification that's happened. That's kind of the joke about buy and hold. Nobody holds anymore for the most part, right? So I've said this before. I don't think any of this ends, any of this bear market ends until you literally get people so sick of the idea of investing that you lose a generation to it. And you are still very, very far from that. It's more than just the argument of, the buy the dip mentality. It's the idea that the way to generate returns is by YOLOing in something that expires in five hours. Like that to me, until that is done, until that hyperactive tactical trading, which is not back tested, which is based purely on gut feeling and too much liquidity, until that's over, I think we're going to be in a period in general where the market does what it always does, which is humble everybody just all at different times. On that point there, regarding yellowing things, share your thoughts on the view that Gen X have been priced out of traditional assets like housing and therefore are looking in a more adventurous direction in yellowing things there just because they feel so priced out of traditional assets that they feel like they can't buy and hold a strategy and accept the returns that we've all accepted for decades. There needs to be double digit returns on a, a monthly or yearly basis. Yeah, well, first of all, I think a lot of this is obviously social media driven. Right, because it's like you remember last year when I was joking about getting a Lambo, Lamborghini, because of the way cryptocurrencies were going vertical. 
Look, I get the cynicism. Believe me, I totally understand it. And younger generation needs to be encouraged to invest, but they need to be encouraged to also read before they invest, to actually study before they invest, not to invest based on a meme or invest based on somebody else telling them what to buy without any consideration of weighting, of risk, of any of this stuff, and, and having a long-term goal. It's unfortunate that the cynicism is there and that the younger generation is being thrown all these completely wrong messages about, oh, this is how you make 20% every single month. It's so easy. Just make $1,000 every single month. It's so easy. It's like, this is nonsense, right? But I get where it comes from because I think a lot of the younger generation probably saw what happened as a kid in the period of the great financial crisis from 07 to 08. They saw their parents go through you know, all the anxiety and suffering and then basically say, well, the system is rigged. So if that's the case, I might as well just go all in and get lucky. It's just, I don't know if there's a way to really stop that except through education. But it is unfortunate that we are in an environment where people, despite having all of this information at their fingertips, are doing the same stuff that we used to as cavemen, which is just react instead of think. Is it truly social media driven or could it be the signs of a top as well? Yeah, partially. I mean, the thing is, I always go back to it's fascinating. You know, when GameStop happened, it was the end of January of 2021. Within two weeks, ARC peaked. Within two weeks, emerging markets peaked. Within two weeks, small caps in the US started going sideways. I mean, for all the, the hand wringing about the return of retail, retail's gotten hit very badly for almost two years now. And it all started around the GameStop. Like that was the peak. The peak was actually the mania around around Reddit. I mean, that's just true. If you look at any chart, you can clearly map out the exact week where that was the end of it, right? I think you're onto something that the idea that when you have that kind of retail mentality, it's often a sign of a peak, kind of the argument of the moment that uh, somebody who's a cab driver is telling you what stocks to buy or what crypto to buy. That's probably a sign of the end. But I still think that it's largely social media driven because Let's face it, people like to follow the FinTwit influencers, including me, although I don't, yeah, you know, I do my best to have integrity and talk about process and conditions more than ideas. But I think there's always going to be the temptation, no matter what, by the vast majority of individuals to simply chase what some well-known influencer has to say about a particular stock because they end up being shown that Lamborghini, they end up being shown that beach that they're taking a picture on. That will never really go away as long as social media is in play. Is there a future in digital assets such as crypto? I say crypto is quite wide range and I suppose focused on Bitcoin, for example, the most broadly adopted institutional sponsorship is there to a degree, exchange traded now. What kind of future is there for digital assets? Do you think you'll ever play a part? Oh, yeah, look, I, I hope it does because I do think it's important for technological innovation. And I think there is something unequivocally to blockchain technology, but it's clear you need to have regulation. I mean, after everything has happened in the last year and a half and all these scams and all these things, it's very clear that you're not going to have the same kind of mania you had before because now you're going to have regulation being forced on it, which is probably not a bad thing, but it, it, it clearly changes the calculus of the role of blockchain in the financial system when now you've got some kind of regulatory authority that can, that can oversee it. Talk me through a typical day in the life of Michael Guyer. Do you keep an eye on the ticker? Do you keep well away? Yeah, I mean, I'm always aware. I mean, it's like everybody else. I have the TV on, on mute, and I have the various asset classes and stocks that I'm looking at real time to maybe tweet about something. Um, 
most people are not aware. It's like, you know, as much as I tweet and put all this content in, which I spend a lot of time after hours putting this stuff together, my day is mainly just on the phone communicating, right? Because again, I go back to, I have a rules-based approach. So I follow the rules. I believe in the research. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the approach. So a lot of it's just talking to people and, and getting a sense of what other people think, which also factors into the way I present material when it comes to my social media accounts. I work a lot. I mean, I know a lot of people say that I think when you're passionate, you work a lot. And when you're in an environment that doesn't favor your approach, you end up working harder and you're still moving backwards while you're running forward. There's only so, so much that micro effort can impact results. I do believe macro cycles determine individual results more than the individual, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try hard to survive when the cycle doesn't favor what you're doing. Like the macro helps you thrive. The micro helps you to survive. So I've been in a survival mindset this whole year because of the way that, and the length of time with which treasuries have failed as the flight to safety trade for the first time in history. At the same time, I know that every single day that goes by, I'm closer to the end of it, which is what excites me, which is what makes me even more passionate about working, which is why I do all these spaces and do all this content and am able to still thankfully grow my presence and personal brand. The cycle will come for what I do, just like it comes for everybody else. And when it does, because now I have a bigger reach and because every single day communicating sharpens my own skills at communicating, whenever that time comes, my hope is that people will suddenly pay attention. And that's where all that effort really gets monetized. As a final question from me, who are your biggest inspirations in the investment business? And that can be past or present. It's cliche to say my father, but obviously my father had a big influence on my work. Mark Favre of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report, Barry Riddle, Sean Molden, Nassim Taleb himself, James Montier was a big one on behavioral finance. So I'm a big fan of looking at things from a behavioral investing perspective. It's like everything else, right? It's like you've got to just study and read as many different things as possible. And I do think psychology is the number one thing everyone has to focus on. Daniel Kahneman is often considered the father of behavioral finance with Amos Tversky. Thinking Fast and Slow was a great book and it had really nothing to do with markets. It was about the way people react and think, right? System one and system two. I think all that formed a lot of my thinking just as a process around how do you create a strategy for an uncertain environment? And then how do you communicate against people who are unable to understand the nuances of an approach, those are always good. And then, of course, a lot of people will say, well, you know, I, I read your white papers. What else would you suggest? And my response is read the references to the white papers that I put in my white papers. Like always go deeper to the source in the source material and see what other academics, other people have written about, other anomalies have been uncovered. Because the more you learn, the more you're going to create your own strategy that hopefully works on average over time. Michael, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate the invite. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Investment Manager podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show.